This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and different ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared or expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Gish Jen. She's the author of six previous books. Her work has appeared in The Best American Short Stories four times, including The Best American Short Stories of the Century, edited by John Updike. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and her work was featured in a PBS American Masters special on the American novel. Uh, her new book is called The Girl at the Baggage Claim, Explaining the East-West Culture Gap. And I'm told that she has a very melodious Siamese cat who may possibly make an appearance during the interview. Welcome to Think Again, Gish. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here. <laughs> so if the Siamese cat starts meowing, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll keep just a little of that as a special bonus for listeners <laughs> and, then, and then let her go. So your book, I read a lot of books uh, for this show, um, especially. In fact, I have little reading time, you know, for anything else aside from preparing for interviews. Um, but that's good because, you know, I invite people whose books are interesting. But your book has made a major impression on me. I'm kind mm -hmm. of filtering everything now through the through the lens of the basic premise. And so I, I think we should start with maybe you explaining a little bit of the big picture of this idea that, you know, in general, Westerners have what you call the avocado pit self versus the flexi self, which is more typical um, in the Far East. Yes, and in the rest of the world. Yeah, in a general kind of way, um, I think that we Westerners are in a bubble, right? And um, that bubble is individualism. Because we're in this bubble, we have certain ways of looking at the world, which seem completely natural to us, um, so natural that it really does not occur to us that maybe other people see things differently. Um, and I do mean very differently. The premise of this book is that, um, very broadly speaking, and I know I am speaking, this is an incredible generalization, um, but very broadly speaking, um, the, my premise is that in the West, um, we value the self very, very highly, and um, we prioritize the self and its needs in, in a way which is very unlike like 
the rest of the world. Um, that is to say that, you know, if we, if we, we might imagine um, that here in the West, we have a self that looks a lot like an avocado with a very large pit. And we are very interested in developing that pit. We are interested in making sure that pit is able to express itself. And most other places in the world, and I do mean most other places in the world, and, and very strikingly in Asia, this is not at all the case. In Asia, the self that dominates, and again, you know, I know this is a broad generalization, but the self that dominates is a self which prizes flexibility. In the West, we people, the ideal is to be a soloist, like if you were a musician, right? Well, in the East, the ideal is to be a member of a chamber group. That's not to say that you don't have your own voice. That's not to say that you don't take initiative or anything like that. But it does mean that with every note, you are looking at the people around you and you are playing in concert with them, right? That's not to say that you are, everyone is playing the same thing, but you are very attuned to what everybody else is doing. And that way of being of the world feels entirely natural to you. And, um, and really, it is inconceivable and very strange to you that some people walk around wanting to be a soloist. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And something that's interesting here is like, it's necessary when you're talking about this kind of thing to qualify that you're making generalizations because, of course, the, we are talking in big general terms. But I think there's something else going on there, which you talk a little bit about in the book as well, which is that not only is it uncomfortable for everybody to have their acculturated self called out as such, but also I think there's a, a reluctance like on the progressive left in the U.S. at this point to pin down the self in any general way to culture, right? We want, we want the idea that it's completely flexible and that nobody can quite put their finger on us from the outside. You know, that's absolutely right. Well, because we believe that the avocado pit is what drives everything, right? And we don't like the idea that that actually we are um, very highly formed by things outside us, um, even though that is, in fact, the case. But also in the United States, of course, you know, it's all these kind of discussions are incredibly politically charged because, you know, any kind of discussion of a foundational difference can easily be abused. You know, my own view of this, um, you know, people have asked me, you know, are you supporting stereotypes? You know, I myself am, am anything but a stereotype. And, you know, when I look at people I know, they are anything but stereotypes. I think that um, the problem with stereotyping really lies with the people who stereotype. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, and, I, and I, don't, I don't think it's helpful to anyone to simply not say what's true. The objective truth is that all people really have both selves in them. Do you know what I mean? In other words, you have the capacity to, ha to be either self. And let me just say that, of course, it, we're really talking about a spectrum, but most people are kind of in the middle there somewhere. And also, um, people are situational. So, you know, people really do react very much to their immediate situation. And if you are in an environment that is very supportive of the pit self, the big pit self, as I like to call it, you know, that is the self that you will be aware of. And if we were to run a psychological test on you at that moment, that is the self that, you know, would be evident. Um, and, 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 you know, anyone who's ever, you know, uttered the words East or West or is aware of just, you know, how big those categories are. Um, and let me just say that, you know, of course there are, you know, if you think about the East, if you just think about China, there are enormous differences just between North and South China. 
um, on the score, and I do mean measurable differences. Um, and then, you know, when we talk about the West, you know, we'd like to think, well, it's Europe and, um, and the United States. But in fact, it's, it's a kind of, there are enormous gradations with, in a general kind of way, um, the levels of individualism going up as you move westward in Europe. And the level of individualism that we have here in America, you know, higher than any anywhere in Europe, <laughs> and probably in the hist- in the history of mankind, there have probably never been the kind of levels of individualism that we see in in some parts of this country, and and again. I do think it's important to realize that, you know, within our country, too, there are enormous differences. And I guess maybe that's to sort of say that, um, you know, the part of me that says, well, you know, is this supporting stereotypes or not? I'm thinking, well, actually, if you understand the framework, the net effect is not to make people who are different use seem more other, but actually to make them seem more understandable and more legible. And they're not just strange. They're operating on a different system, which a system which you can understand. Well, what's what's I think what's what's so challenging here that like I wonder if there's any way around the anxiety that all of this can provoke for people. I mean, I guess particularly for people in whom the avocado pit is strong. You know, I watched I was watching the other day an episode of Doctor Who called The Flesh, in which they were making these there was this substance, this kind of, I don't know, nano technology flesh that could be made to imitate you perfectly, you know, essentially essentially a clone type thing. We have a lot of anxiety in in the West, I think, around the idea of being like anyone else and, and high stakes in the idea that we are unique and different. And the idea that these things are culturally relative, which like clearly they are to a great extent, that's very personal for a lot of people because it's like, okay, so then the whole foundation of my life and everything that I think is my my purpose and my mission and whatever is somehow fictional, you yeah. know, because it's grounded. Yeah. Well, what it's, do you think it's about not that? fictional, but it's constructed, right? So, um, you know, I think the whole question of whether we are completely socially constructed, you know, I, I don't actually believe that. You know, but but in fact, I don't think we I don't think we know one way or the other, right? So these are one of these questions like, do we have free will? And the answer is, you could argue it both way, but the, you know, clearly, it's always going to be a question. But you're right, um, and I mean, I guess my feeling would be that, you know, if you understood, if you if you understand this framework, you will understand, you know, why the East is the way it is. But you will also understand why the West is the way it is, and you will you will understand that we do have. Um, a cultural mandate, you know, to be different. And there is a way in which you can sort of say, well, maybe if I understand that it's only a cultural mandate, you could sort of say, well, maybe I will realize my whole life is a fiction. But maybe you could also kind of find it kind of liberating, you know? <laughs> like, you know, you don't have to spend, you know, 24 hours a day trying to establish how you are unique. You know, the chances are that there, someone rather like you um, has existed before and someone rather like you will exist again. And that's OK. It's more than OK. You know, I mean, it's it's just, it, you know, it, this is like saying, you know, you don't want there to be a sun in the sky, but there is a sun in the sky, you know, so you can relax. Well, indeed, you know, if we if we ever get to the point of, you know, artificial general intelligence or anywhere near it, we're going to have we're going to be dealing with these questions around identity anyway. You know, it, we're, we're, we're going to have to basically rethink <laughs> what it means to be conscious and, and so on. But I want to ask you a little bit about this in the context of 
art uh, and writing, you know, like in, in the West, there's Harold Bloom's idea of the anxiety of influence, the idea that writers are essentially, you know, great artists, uh, quote unquote, are essentially trying to overthrow their their models in a way, you know, the people that they... Their forebears. They, yeah, their forebears. <laughs> and, and you talk a lot of, in the book, you know, about the amount of copying that goes on in uh, China, specifically this entire village. I don't remember the name, Daofen, 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 right, where where they they basically produce master, Van Gogh masterpieces in various sizes and so on. So I wondered if we could talk a little bit ab about how that works in the arts. Again, these are big East and West, but <laughs> yeah. in the in the the flexi self versus the the avocado pit self. Yeah, well, we can just, I guess that's just to say we can say that there are two models. And, you know, with people adhering to these models to, to different degrees. But, but yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. Of course, I, I'm a fiction writer. And, um, you know, I was steeped in the school that said that, yes, you must, uh, you know, actually kill your forebears. Okay. <laughs> I'm also, that's kind of a funny, that's a kind of a funny thing for me to um, think about because one of my forebears as an Asian-American writer of a certain generation was, of course, Maxine Hahn Kingston. And so, you know, I was asked about her, you know, very often early in my career. And and I would say something like, well, you know, she's my forebear, so I have to kill her, you know, in order to be a writer, so and so and so. And the, so the first time I ever met Maxine, Maxine, who was the sweetest person on earth, of course, she said, oh, she said, you know, I read an interview with you. And <laughs> you said you wanted to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was just awful. Um, but of course, but, but, but that is, you know, that is the model. Of course, I no, 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 no. But it is the model that we grow up with, right? It is very, very deeply ingrained in us that we must be utterly original, that we must break the mold, right? So that, you know, so that we must basically start the whole history of fiction must start again with us. That's our ideal. But, you know, in, and you will see, by the way, you know, even people who are not in the arts exactly, but, you know, even in other fields, for instance, in business, I mean, you know, the ideal is Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs, the genius, you know, and he himself had these ideas when he went to first got to college. You know, he wanted, he didn't want his parents to be anywhere near him. He wanted to seem as if he had just come out of nowhere. You know, he had given birth to himself, right? What's interesting, though, is, as you say, like, there are collectivist or flexi-self tendencies that in tension with avocado pit self-tendencies in even in American culture. You know, when I think about hip-hop or jazz, right, which of course is, is emerging out of the black American experience, which can trace its roots back to Africa, but like, you know, those guys talk about, uh, those guys and gals talk about their influences all the time. There's like a major tradition of saying, you know, I want to give respect to this person and that person who taught me what I know. And, and that, that's as distinct, I think, from rock and roll where, where the emphasis is very much on, like I gave birth to myself, I'm sui generis. Yeah, yeah. and I think yeah. that cultural difference, if you will, is very much traceable to you know, the roots of these different genres. And I will say also to the way that, um, to the degree to which they're recognized as art capital A, you know, kind of in, in, in Western culture, um, which is to say that, you know, every, you know, every um, type of art um, that is more interdependent, that, you know, reflects a more of a flexi self, that, re that reflects a, a view of the, ult you know, kind of the pinnacle figure as being not a genius, but a master 
meaning somebody who has absorbed a tradition and then made something new, right, but who identifies themselves, you know, as belonging to a tradition, that is, you know, in Western culture, especially in the United States, always seen as second best. It's not, you know, it is never the pinnacle. Because our pin- pinnacle, you know, figure is is always the genius, and and that's very different than than many most places in the world, um, you know, including Africa, including the Middle East, you know, including South America, um, you know, including most of Europe, and very much including the Far East, you know, where clearly from their point of view, clearly the great figure is the figure of the master, you know, and, the, and there's a kind of condescension here in the West. I mean, I think whatever, whether you wanted to say that a figure, a, a master figure really represents our, you know, our dominant culture and therefore can be seen as, you know, the ultimate figure or not. I do think that you cannot look at other cultures and just sort of say, well, you know, that's fine that they're, that they have flexi cells, but you know, that really it's, they will never be as great as us. Do you know what I mean? Really? You know? Right, right. There's a there's the idea that somehow we produce. I mean, this is a stereotype that somehow we produce more groundbreaking or important things than cultures that think that way, or right? works that are you know classified as great. And you know, if there's something that I I hope that my book will dispel, it is that you know that that is completely wrong. And I do you know we can absolutely look at some of the some of the the painting and other artworks that have come out of the East, and I think that they are indisputably great capital G, and they are indisputably the works of masters, and indisputably you know reflect the flexi self, not the big big self. You could you could you could argue, I guess, that like great works, quote unquote, in the in the West. I mean, they they may they may well have kind of great subtle substance to them, in addition to unique surface features. But that there is an emphasis on kind of reinventing forms and maybe on the visibility of of difference, whereas like. I, I'm recalling that documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, the about the sushi master Jiro in Japan. And, you know, he's over 80 years old. And he and the whole thing is about how he basically does the same exact routine every day, you know, for I don't know, for 40, 50 years he's been going in and like, you know, just and he's focused on slicing the fish slightly better, you know, and like so there is there are substantial differences but they're not they're not formal diff- like his progress is not immediately visible from it's, the outside it's, it's and, incremental yeah it's incremental right? right and the idea that you know you're going to refine and refine and refine and refine and let me just say that greatness lies that in that direction as well right you know i mean i just think right. it's just it's just a completely different conception but but greatness absolutely results from that endless refinement, um, and it's so interesting because you'll see, you know, you'll see this in, in business as well, where you know the, a lot of here the idea is that you know you must have a distinctive brand, right? And you must, you know, the, your brand must be unique, and that's that's the most important thing, and that's the kind of seen as the key to success. And and yet, if you look at Asia, you know, we have some spectacularly successful businesses that are based on this incremental model, where look, they didn't invent the smartphone. But they refined it just like Juro with his sushi. They refined it, they refined it, they refined it. And the result is something that is pretty, pretty cool and I will say very successful. 
So, you know, we, we, we like to think of the genius just, you know, having this, this tremendously wonderful avocado pit, and then it just comes out. Um, even though if you talk to anyone who has accomplished anything, you know, there was, there was nobody for whom it just popped out, (laughs) you know? (laughs) That's what I was going to say, which is that like, when I think of the sort of quote unquote master writers that I've you know, had the chance to talk to on this show, like almost to a person, they talk about, I mean, they, they arrive at, at some point at the idea that sort of discipline is essential, that showing up to their writing desk even when they don't feel like writing is essential, and that all of the kind of shiny ideas that maybe kind of dominate the PR in, in their business about, about talent and individuality and whatever, like, in the day-to-day craft, you know, most most accomplished writers seem to arrive at this point. Western writers as well, that like you just have to sit down. It's a struggle. You have to edit and like basically learn not to take your own words so seriously and completely re- rewrite them. Right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. And it's not just in writing. You know, this is this would be true in in any field. Right. Right. But the question is, why do we have this? narrative that in so many ways just kind of uh, buries the truth, you know, and I guess that's kind of the point of my book is that, you know, we have these cultural, these cultural narratives that we ourselves understand to be, to be a little bit out of sync with reality. And yet we tell those stories anyway, you know, and, and that's problematic, not only because it, it leads writers or whatever young people in any artistic field or really any field to think that, um, that talent is everything, you know, right, right. (laughs) and it leads them to be really kind of unprepared for, you know, the sheer doggedness that's involved in getting anywhere. Um, so, you know, that's one problem. But another problem is it, 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 you know, it leads us to kind of completely miss, you know, other uh, forms of human endeavor. You know, like, what are they doing? You know, it seems, as, you know, we somehow that's not we it, we, it, it um, leads us to kind of view them as somehow not quite legitimate. Um, and, you know, and that's and that's very problematic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I. It also come, you know, this gets very fraught in the area of education because I know, you know, I have a nine-year-old son and I've spent some time teaching in my career and I, I'm very firmly grounded in this kind of progressive model of, you know, engaging children's natural curiosity and the idea that if you make the curriculum sort of hands-on and interesting enough that kids will learn uh, obviously, you can be there to help them along and so on. And from that perspective, it's hard to see the model of education in, say, China or Korea, where many kids are in school for, you know, even elementary aged kids are in school for, I don't know, what, 10, 12 hours a day, something like sometimes going to after school um, as anything but terrifying and sort of smashing, smashing down the spirit of the of the child but your book problematizes that as well right and kind of suggests that that's yeah, yeah. i mean i'm not you know i think that you know in the end you know educational systems exist to create adults who can function in the world that they are in you know right so, right right you know there is not there isn't one bone in my body that thinks that we should take the asian educational system and bring it here you know <laughs> okay um, but you know so but i think that if we are looking at this system you know the question to me is just that does it work for them 
you know, <laughs> given their right. givens. And so, you know, so I think we're often asking the wrong question. Um, and let me just say that it's not clear to me that at least the, the educational system that dominates in China right now even works for China. So that's a whole other gotcha. subject. Um, well, but, ours but, doesn't really work for us. But either, exactly. The thing is, and or it works for some, but not for everyone. And I think right, that this right. is where so I'm not saying that we should take the the Asian education system here, but we might look at kind of what they're doing and ask whether the fact that they're doing it and it does work for some people, like what that tells us about what we refuse to do here. Right. It's not that they don't recognize that some students are more talented than others. You know, and in fact, it's very interesting in their view, like it's a the reverse of here. They think anybody can do math, but to do literature, you have to have talent. Oh, really? <laughs> it's kind of interesting. interesting. Yeah. So that, you know, they'll sort of say, well, you know, but their view is that everybody can do math. So, you know, here we're like, well, you know, this person is just not naturally disposed to math. And their their view is if you're not disp- disposed to math, you need to start earlier and work harder. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, yeah, you yeah, see, because yeah, they have yeah. this flexible view of the self. Because, I mean, I'm, we're not talking about whether they can become mathematicians who are going to, you know, write PhDs in pure math and, and move the whole field of number theory forward, you know. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, can we get to them, get everyone to a level where they can do their trigonometry? And, you know, the Chinese view is, of course. That, you know? That's reminding me of the difference between the way we teach music here and and the and the sort of Suzuki approach which is you know my son plays guitar and he he's been taking lessons with a Suzuki teacher since he was little and the idea there is is exactly that that like everyone you know we expect every human child to learn their native language so why do we assume with music that you know we sort of like put them near a piano and let them try it three times and then if they're not feeling it then, oh, they're not into music, you know. But this this approach, which I guess fits with the flexi-self idea, you know, is is more an assumption that everyone can learn that language. Uh, not everyone's going to be Mozart, but... Right, you know. but, but they understand that, but every, you're, that's exactly right. Everybody can learn it. And, and, by the way, that they will lead richer, you know, lives as a result of learning it, you know, so right. it's not pointless. This is not just, be, you know, we're just making them do it because we want, you know, in fact, it will, it will better equip them to, to, to lead, or, or, you know, what we might think of as a fulfilling life. So this is a good thing and just do it, right? Do your skills. And, you know, but right, that's so, right. but it's, so it's a very different emphasis now, like, don't get me wrong. I mean, the Far East, they've taken this, I think way too far, <laughs> You know, and, you know, well, a lot of that is they just have very limited educational resources. I mean, there just aren't enough schools, literally, for all the people. And there certainly aren't enough teachers. And so, you know what I mean? So if you were very good at um, hip hop in China, um, you know, you might, you know, they might very well say, but you need to do math. And, you know, and they might, you might never have one minute in the day, you know, to be able to practice your hip hop. So, you know, that that is also very problematic. And I'm not arguing for that at all. Right. But I do think right. that we need to ask ourselves, well, you know, I mean, are, you know, are we right to be so focused on the avocado pit of the child? There are actually many educators who are trying to get us out off of that model also, you know, Carol Dweck for instance at Stanford, you know, was in what she calls a, you know, trying to get people into a growth mindset, you know. So rather than a sure. fixed mindset because the trouble with the avocado pit once you start looking at well, does this person have natural aptitude? 
instead of being something which um, which opens the person's life up, it actually closes it down because, you know, you, you measure them early on, you discover that they are not particularly gifted at math, and then it's kind of over. Well, we don't expect you to do math because you're not good at math. And then later on, their options in life have been, you know, have been narrowed because nobody ever just sort of said, we know you're not good at math, you're going to do it anyway, <laughs> you know? And, and it's, so, it's, it's in, a, in a funny kind of way, you know, we're so focused on natural appetite aptitude that it becomes kind of a trap right so you know i just think that there's some kind of middle ground but you know i think that we need to think about things like you know the word training you know in in china the word training is is you know it's like of course you train children here that's like a dirty word you know the idea of training a child is that it has this this feeling of that you know you have gone against their natural being and it's it's almost like a violation right to train somebody to do something exactly right you want them to discover it themselves or right you know, and, and then that's certainly the ideal i mean look you know if you have a you know a young yo-yo ma it's like please just give him the cello and leave him alone you know right, right, right <laughs> i mean right. you know there's some of these you know definitely you have a, a little mozart just leave them alone you know but there's for many many people for whom actually leaving them alone is not the answer for whom training maybe shouldn't be such a dirty word. And like I say, for whom, you know, our attitudes toward training may actually really finally be doing them harm. Yeah, I mean, it's like we don't want to accept, I mean, we we are creatures of habit on one level. We are also sort of higher thinking beings, but we're creatures of habit. And so learning certain habits that are good, you know, through training can actually be beneficial in terms of your resilience over over life. Abs yeah. Absolutely. And I, th I think we have to understand that, you know, our ideas about these things, uh, you know, that it's ideological. Do you know what I mean? In other words, like we don't want to think that, but that is simply the case. <laughs> right. So, right, you know, right, I mean, right. I and I think that, you know, very foundationally, this avocado pit, you know, it's an interjected divinity. Do you know what I mean? In other words, we feel that God lies within where in many places in the world, God, whatever that is, lies without. Right. So, you know, because we feel that God lies within, you know, you know, everything that the God says within, that's what we pay attention to. Yeah. But that is simply an idea. It is an idea. It is an idea with roots and so on. It's not, you know, an objective truth, right? I mean, it's just, it is just an idea. And it's an idea that has been very, very powerful. It's relatively new. It's been very, very, very powerful. And the dominance of the West rests on this idea because I think, as I talk about in the book, I mean, you know, whether you focus on the big pit within or on the environment without, it leads you to actually perceive things differently. So that if you, you know, if you have a lion in the savanna, you know, the big pit self is going to see that lion and the, you know, the flexi self is going to see the savanna and the relationship of the lion to the savanna. And the answer is there is truth in both of these perspectives. And, and I think that actually, I think one of the reasons that this, the West has been so successful is because we, we, because we looked at things a new way and really because no one else was looking at it that way, you know, it gave us a whole avenue into a way of thinking that turned out to be very, very, very powerful, partly because nobody else was using it, right? So, you know, it led into sort of analytical thinking and which was the foundation of the scientific method, you know, and, you know, these things were very, very powerful. And so I, you know, I would feel like, well, yes, it was ideological, but wow, what an invention. That said, it's still limited. And, you know, it's, it's a, I mean, I wouldn't want us to abandon it, but I think it's time to think in a both and 
kind of way rather than an either or kind of way? No, no. It's just that things get complicated and people like things to be simple. <laughs> so, but but the, yes. the real picture is actually fairly complex and that's okay. Like lots of overlapping yes. influences. Yeah. So I could go on and on like this actually for three hours, but maybe we should take a look at the surprise videos. Otherwise, the whole pre premise of the show will be compromised. Okay. Let's take a look at... Um, Paul Root Wolpe, who is a bioethicist, talking about the ethics of designer brains. I think it's very clear that your grandchildren, maybe your children, maybe even you, are going to reproduce differently than your grandparents did. The whole process of how we design and execute future generations, execute in the sense of create, um, is changing. And we're going to have a power to actually manipulate the genetics of our offspring in a couple of generations, maybe next generation, maybe sooner as usual than anyone suspects. And I worry about what that's going to mean as we begin to micromanage the genetics of our children. Because here's the truth about enhancement. Every society will enhance itself, or every individual in every society will enhance itself. You will enhance yourself to fulfill what you think are the proper goals for your life in your community and society. So if we live in a country where the goal is to produce as rapidly as possible, to get ahead as quickly as possible, to um, achieve as much as possible, the enhancements you will choose in your life will be those that allow you to do that. In a society where there's more of a communal sense, in a society where achievement isn't the be-all and end-all, you know, perhaps you'll choose more social enhancements. In a European society where you get you know, three months of vacation and where you have the day ends you know, at five and everyone closes their shops or whatever, perhaps the enhancement of choice there will be one that improves and increases social life, not productivity. There's a reason why we're all taking antidepressants in the United States. And there's a reason why all our kids are on Ritalin and Modafinil. And you know, pretty soon, you know, Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on, on encoding memory, says we're going to have a memory pill. And if little Johnny is taking Ritalin because, not because he has diagnosed ADD, but because he's not doing that well, imagine what's going to happen when the memory pill comes out. While in some other cultures where educational achievement at that age is not as pressured and powerful, maybe little Johnny there, little Jose, will not be taking um, modafinil and a memory pill and other things so that he can get into the better third grade or the more exclusive school or whatever it is. And so what worries me about enhancement is not enhancement itself, is not the process of enhancing ourselves. It is why we enhance ourselves and what we enhance ourselves towards. Because unless society sends the right kinds of moral messages, creates the right kinds of, of values and goals for its members, the way in which we're going to try to enhance our lives may not be helpful. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is, you know, of course, the idea of enhancement um, is something that 
is very uncomfortable um, for people with a big pit self. So if you think that big that naturally given big pit is divine, any thought of uh, monkeying with it is extremely disconcerting. It'll be interesting to see, you know, as these technologies take hold, you know, I would not be surprised to see them much more widely adopted in in societies with with a flexi self. Right. Um, because it's it's less taboo. My second thought is that, you know, I mean it's of course when he talks about, you know, this kind of mindless race to the top and he's you know, he associates associates that with America, you know, I would have to say that, um, you know, I mean, we've been talking about the split between the flexi self and the big pit self, you know, I would have to say that, you know, you would have to also ask yourself whether the society that the two selves have created is hierarchical or not. The idea that, you know, I mean, I, listening to the video, I think you might have the idea that, well, you know, the flexi cells are going to have, ha, have it right. right. You know, they're going to care more about social harmony and real kind of real richness of life, you know, unless, unless, unlike us crazy big pit selves, you know. Sure. <laughs> and I, I am not actually, uh, you know, I think that that would be um, mistaken. Right, 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 um, right. Because I think that, um, you know, China is a great example of a society which is both a flexi self and also very hierarchical. So it's not, even though they, even though, yes, they, they place an enormous emphasis on being attuned to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, it is about getting your group to rise in this social structure. And so, you know, the way, the way in which they would self-enhance, ironically, I would think would very strongly resemble the ways in which we in America might right. self-enhance. I'll just sort of say that, you know, that's just my initial reaction to it. Right, because status because status depends, like you, you can only care intensely about status if you see yourself as embedded in a network of relationships and what other people think of you as being extremely important, right? Yeah, and like we see, you know, not all flexi self societies are hierarchical. Uh, for instance, Cambodia was not was not that hierarchical, you know. And some some, right. might, some might say that um, because you know their flexi self was so influenced by Buddhism, I mean, rather than Confucianism, that it was not very hierarchical. But you might also argue that you know it, that because they were not so hierarchical, um, it made them very vulnerable, you know, to to being invaded and so on. Right. You could argue that in that sense, uh, Buddhism is not entirely evolutionarily adaptive right yeah, because I mean, uh, given the, yeah, yeah. It, it tends to it tends to encourage you to you know to 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 make peace with your your situation in in the world but um yeah and that and that that's fine as long as your neighbor is doing the same exactly exactly right. <laughs> i mean we're out on a limb here uh when we go into the future but i mean i'm trying to think of what the first genetic enhancements americans would primarily go for would would be i mean my instincts say or no genetic and also like just kind of i don't know like pharmaceutical whatever you know whatever way we can upgrade ourselves um <laughs> no, the first thing we probably make ourselves so that we could work 24 7 and didn't have to sleep right <laughs> i guess i guess we would i guess we would yeah i mean i guess <laughs> i mean I, I i myself love to sleep and so you know i would be against right that. and i yeah. do live here in cambridge massachusetts where <laughs> Right. We have a somewhat skewed view of the world, perhaps. Um, but it seems to me that uh, many people now kind of really, many people around me kind of resent having to sleep, you know, and they would just as soon not have to sleep. Sure. They often try to get by without sleeping. Right. But sort of, I guess, what would constitute 
brilliance, right? I mean, would we, would we focus, I, I, I suspect if offered a memory pill versus a creativity pill, we would go for the creativity pill first. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you think that would be different? I mean, again, we're speculating, but do you think that would be diff different in China? <laughs> like well, I think actually today, because, um, you know, just as I'm sort of saying, we need to be aware of how they think right. and how different it is. Right. And we might think about whether, you know, some of the self that they have might be useful to us. Um, they are ahead of us in that way, in the, in the sense that they are aware that creativity is not their strong suit. And um, so therefore, if you ask them um, what pill would they want, I think they would go for the creativity pill because they're aware that they have kind of, um, that this is a challenge for them. I think they would like to have a little Steve Jobs in them. Yeah, we would never take the discipline pill. I mean, I might, but I mean, I, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, the, di the discipline and resilience pill would just seem decidedly unsexy in the West, I think. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Although the number of people who I think that, you know, if you... If you could actually test their lives like before and after the resilience pill, right? You know, <laughs> I, I think you know maybe if they saw the studies where you know so and so <laughs> took the resilience pill and that look, you know, right, right, um, right, right. Maybe maybe they would feel differently. But you're right. But you know, on the gut level, they don't think like, wow, if only there was a pill for resilience. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's right. So shall we take a look at the at the next video, which is sure. um, Nato Thompson? Uh, he's the director of creative time in New York, and I'm not sure, let me see what the, the video is called. Game over, is anti-establishment just another corporate product? I don't know if you ever play video games, but uh, I play a lot of them. And there's a certain kind of ethos that's in a lot of video games, particularly those games like Call of Duty and the first-person shooter games that it's important to pay attention to because I feel like they really hit the spirit of the age or even games like Grand Theft Auto. These are big selling video games by the way. They're like the block, they're like Beyonce's. In those games basically you're this fighter who everyone has betrayed. Like the US military betrays you, your family betrays you. Everyone is out to get you and even your close military buddy or whoever. The storylines are always that ultimately everyone's screwing you. Certainly it is a safe position for a video game because it's safe across the entire ideological spectrum. But I also think it pinpoints a certain kind of mood of the era. Anti-establishment runs deep across so many currents, you know, and everyone's got their idea of who the big, the man is. And you know, you look at even like a Coca-Cola ad and they'll encourage you to go in your cubicle and throw out your papers and get out there and just be free. So even like corporate America is encouraging us to fight the man. Do you remember those old ads and it was like the dweebish PC computer guy? And then the Mac guy was like this kind of red hot chili peppers hipster kid. And he's like, hey, you know, and he's the individual. and It's freedom. But I think even then, even the spirit of anti-establishment gets into the establishment. Just to say, because even these, you know, these big video games like Call of Duty, they're mega industries. They're not like some scrappy anti-establishment thing. I mean, they've got people that work on it the size of major films like Jurassic Park, I mean, big money. But everyone's anti-establishment, and certainly the mood in this country is deeply anti-establishment. <laughs>
Oh, well, that was pretty interesting. Yeah, because, of course, that anti-establishment thing is we are talking about individualism. We are talking about, you know, the very dominant narrative that we have in America, which is, you know, the individual versus society and, and all of society with the individual, of course, being the good guy and all of society being bad. Um, and, you know, but his point that this is a corporate product is very well taken. And in fact, of course, if we think about where this narrative came from, this narrative is very much a product of the Cold War. I mean, I'm not saying it began with the Cold War, but the answer is if we were to kind of track like, well, how many people thought this was an, you know, an important narrative to them? Um, I mean, we don't have such a graph, but I think that if we did, we would see a very sharp upward turn during the Cold War. And so the answer is, you know, our idea that we stand against evil, and that that's an original stance. Do you know what I mean? That that that's a stance which is which has to do with our nature, is actually the product of U.S. propaganda. You know, I mean, I think that as the U.S. became uh, more and more embroiled, <laughs> um, you know, with the Soviet Union, um, our way of differentiating ourselves was to, you know, to generate these two narratives. You know, we were Jackson Pollock, you know, uh, they were robots. Right. And um, that that um, the government very actively promoted that. Um, so meaning that, you know, they were in there, they were promoting art shows that, you know, that featured people like Jackson Pollock, the other abstract expressionists. Um, they were actually supporting even, you know, literary magazines, right. you know, right. <laughs> where this kind of narrative was, was being um, advanced. Um, and they were literally buying up 50% of the run of certain certain literary journal, journals in order to keep them afloat. And sure enough, their propaganda efforts paid off. You know, I mean, you know, the efforts were mostly international, but they were domestic as well. So that in order to fight our fight with the Soviet Union, you know, not only did we have to convince other nations in the world that the Soviet Union, you know, were these evil collectivists. And that is, by the way, one of the reasons I avoid the word collectivism in my book, you know, as best I can, is because, you know, the political overtones are just overwhelming. You know, collectivism is bad. But the answer is that they promoted it abroad, but they, they had to promote it domestically as well. So, you know, what this um, guy NATO is saying is a corporate product. And, um, you know, before that, it was, you know, is simply U.S. propaganda. Right. And we've we've all bought it. We bought our own propaganda and we brought our we're now buying this corporate product that that he's absolutely right you know i mean that's you know that's enabling us to feel great and kind of powerful as we sit there at the video game you know through which they are making a very handsome profit right yeah. <laughs> right 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 yeah, yeah. it's ir- ironic yeah i mean it's the, like there's obvious irony in in an enormous corporate uh, enormous businesses built on the idea that you are a rugged individualist against the machine. Exactly. Um, but, exactly. you know, while all that, I can see the obvious truth in, in what you're saying, I mean, I also think back to the beginning of America, right? I mean, like, it, it is a foundational idea of this country that we don't want to be ruled. Right. I mean, that essentially we want individual freedom. We want, you know, I mean, and then, of course, the founding fathers argued over what exactly that might mean. But you know, we overthrew a tyrant. So there was that. Well, you know, it's one thing to be free of a tyrant. And it's another thing to imagine that you can live without society. Sure. That's the kind of turn we made with people like Emerson and Thoreau, you know. Right. There's a difference between 
not wanting to be taxed without representation, right? Um, that right. still assumes that there's a government there and you might not like the rules you know, under which you are being subjugated, but that's not to say you reject the idea of government altogether. And there's a big difference between that and kind of, you know, um, a more anarchist view, you know, which is that, you know, we don't want any government or, you know, I'm not saying that Emerson and Thoreau thought that, but I think that some of the ideas that we have now that your expert NATO was talking about in his tape are that, you know, when he sort of says like, you know, all guys are bad guys, you know, like it's the individual versus everyone. And all society. Right. You know, and, um, you know, he's sort of saying, like, this is an amazing level of individualism. Um, and I would have to agree. It's one thing right. to stand up and sort of say, basically, this is not fair. That's one thing. That's you know, right. like, and so your, your, your aim is to uh, generate some new form of social order based on rules that are fair. That's one thing. It's another thing to say, wow, you know, it is me against everyone and me against right. all social order. I'm thinking like, wow, you know, first of all, it's very sad, um, very, very sad. And, and also it's a fantasy because we are just not evolved, you know, um, to, to live by ourselves, you know, with no other people and, and not to not to be able to trust anyone else is just a really a tragic thing. I think so. And I think there's an interesting manifestation of that, like that's kind of internet driven in some ways uh, in popular culture, where we have this idea of haters, which I think is coming from rap music. But like, I see, you know, I see young people wearing, and not just young people, but I, you know, you, you see the message sort of ignore the haters as kind of a meme in our culture, this idea that somehow whoever you are, you you will be beset by haters who simply don't like your individual you know that any anyone who might criticize you is in some way trying to stop your meteoric star from rising and that you must steel yourself against the possibility of of outside criticism which seems like a dangerous dangerous place to be like that you know, whatever you do should be okay, fundamentally. Right. I mean, it doesn't leave a lot of room for education. <laughs> right, or insight or growth. <laughs> or yeah. inspiration, even. Well, Gishchen, thank you so much for being on Think Again today to talk to me about, uh, about your wonderful book, The Girl at the Baggage Claim. Uh, it's been my pleasure. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for being with us. And if you are new to the show or if you haven't had a chance to do it yet, please do us a huge favor and go to iTunes or wherever you listen and rate and or review the show. I love the reviews especially, and I read them all. Uh, although some people say that's not so wise to do. I take a deep breath and I read them. And sometimes they actually make the show better. You guys have given some advice that I've taken to heart. And we'll be back next week with another and completely radically different conversation. And I hope you can join us then. Bye.